Disrupting Japan, Episode 73. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, gaming has always pushed the limits of both computer hardware and the interfaces we use to interact with computers. Jie Shin of PowerCore is blurring the distinction between the online and offline interaction. PowerCore enables video games to react to the presence of physical objects. For example, if you owned a figurine of a superhero, that hero could appear in the game. It's a simple interaction that radically changes the way we view the digital analog divide. Of course, As with all new technologies, adoption is never smooth, and Jia explains some of the mistakes that burned Disney and some of the major market players. It seems that, as is so often the case, the secret to introducing innovative technology is to do only as much as you absolutely have to, and then watch how your users react. It's a simple idea in principle. But there are surprising reasons why some of the most influential companies in the industry have trouble following it. But GA tells that story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsors and get right to the interview. I want to tell you about Justa. Now, I've known these guys for years, and I've been recommending them long before they became a sponsor. Justa is really the only recruiting site that gets bilingual startups. Whether you're looking for American engineers or Japanese sales staff or the other way around, Justa can help you out. Unlike recruiting companies, they're priced to be very startup friendly, and unlike job boards, they're an active part of the startup community here, and they're trusted by some of the best talent Japan has to offer. So drop by justa.io and see what they're about. Some of Japan's largest companies are starting open innovation programs and actively reaching out to global startups. They're new at this, and that's where Crew, with two W's, comes in. Crew runs corporate startup accelerators for companies like Toyota and Panasonic and dozens more, and these programs are one of the best ways to jumpstart your business in Japan. Many are open to global startups, and they're completely free. Now, I've known and worked with the Crew team. And they're probably doing more than anyone to bridge the gap between corporate Japan and global startups. So drop by crew with two W's dot ME slash four hyphen startups and get started. I'm sitting here with GA Shen of PowerCore. Now, PowerCore does toys to life, or sometimes it's called offline, online business. But why don't you explain basically what it is and who uses it? Sure. The、uh, Toys to Life is a model that,、um, from our perspective, you know, Japan's done a lot of pioneering,、um, but the United States in the last maybe five or six years have made a very large business out of.、Uh, and so, you know, we point to in the US, Skylanders、mm-hmm. from Activision. Disney had a big one called Infinity, featuring a lot of the great Disney characters. Nintendo, Lego, they all have some、uh, forays into this.、Uh, and specifically, it's、uh, toys that are collectible. Um, that have a strong interaction with video games.、Um, and so the guys that do it、uh, kind of like on a large scale, they usually have console games in which you have different characters which you can stick into the game. 
They have different power-ups. They have different game mechanics associated to it. For example, there would be um, a figurine or a trophy or a sticker of some kind that would activate a character in the game or would activate new levels in the game. Skylanders, I think, is the best game design. They really accentuate the collection of individual characters. And so imagine a Super Mario game, but different levels have different mechanics. So for instance, like certain ones require you to be able to have wheels as a feet to be able to run faster. Other ones require you to have like big hands to be able to crawl out walls. So what is the physical tie-in there? So as a, as a player, you literally have your characters in front of it. When you're walking through and say that there's a specific enemy that you want to defeat that requires a specific character, you immediately swap the character uh, right on the pedestal and that person immediately appears inside of the game. Okay, so you're the, you're swapping physical characters in the real world and that's impacting the game in, in real time as you play it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Are most customers taking existing IP and making toys like Star Wars or Frozen or, or Angry Birds? Or are they companies that have like a popular game and want to add a layer of physical interactivity to it. We we kind of we have three categories of customers. The main the big customers are large toy companies that are trying to unify kind of a merchandising strategy. That in Japan, let's use Naruto as an example. Um, Naruto is you know kind of licensed out from Shueisha, uh, and they take that and they a bunch of other companies do the merchandise and a bunch of other companies do the games. Um, none of them are the same. Um, and so typically with an IP company, there's a lot of uh, a lot of business units, a lot of companies associated to it, and none of them are kind of really interacting with one another. Um, that, and that's really kind of a sweet spot for us, right? IPs that are doing large launches and that have that are existing in a lot of different places, but they really should be creating experiences that uh, really unify everything, right? Uh, and and Marvel is a good example of, of doing a good job of that, right? Marvel and Disney, what they do is. You know, they're creating universes that everything interacts with the TV shows, work with the movies, the movies work with the games. Everything kind of feeds into individual aspects to it. But if you look at everybody else outside of Disney, um, they're definitely not doing that. Right? Like a movie launches, has nothing to do with the TV show. The toys themselves have their own campaigns and whatnot. And like, our job is actually create um, universes among all these different mediums uh, as a user so for you to participate. Okay. Listen, before we dig down deeper into the market as a whole, let's talk about you for a minute. Sure. So this isn't your first startup. You actually started a pretty successful company called Rocky in San Francisco eight years ago now? It's I think we officially started 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Let's see, that was a, it was a company that was a, a platform for developing apps on Facebook and social media. What made you decide it was time to to move on from that industry and move into toys to life? Well, I mean, I think one of the other big things is I moved to Japan. Around 2010, I came here because uh, we did a joint venture with SoftBank. Right. Um, and so that was, that was a catalyst for me to move here. But I've always, I personally always wanted to be in Japan. A uh, reason for me to move on was, was kind of more of like a personal reflection point. Um, Rock U as a company became very, very large. It's definitely not the sweet spot in which I enjoy operating at. When I had left, we were like 350 people or something in the United States office alone. I wanted to come here to basically try and do new stuff. I mean, I wanted to focus really on becoming somebody that actually created strong content. What was your attraction to Japan? Was the industry itself attractive or was just the country attractive? The country attracted me. Right. I mean, I've been coming to Japan since 2003 every year. 
for me, it was like a, it's a very strong personal decision. I definitely wanted to live here. Okay, well, gaming in Japan, it's it's certainly different than it is in the U.S. So, is PowerCore doing most of its current business in Japan or the U.S., or do you have customers in both places? We're pretty much evenly split as far as customers and as the, and the team. Um, far as core game businesses, Japan and Korea is actually the leader for that kind of business. Um, the U.S., it, more interestingly, is coming more from the toy side um, as well as the, uh, the IP rights holders. United States IPs are more movie-driven, um, and so we're doing a lot more business from kind of like the movie IP and marketing launch sides. It's the same goal that we're trying to achieve, but because of how businesses and companies are, are set up, uh, U.S. and Japan are actually very different. With everything being digital these days, more and more of our life is digital, do you think there's some special appeal to having a physical object? Do people identify with that somehow more strongly than they do just the digital game or the digital character themselves? Absolutely. But the, I mean, and there is, a, there is a difference based on individual IPs, and that's something that we've learned a lot about in the last year. Like how? Uh, the original thesis was you take any game that has a large audience with it and we should be able to merchandise it. That's absolutely not true, right? Because the, uh, the two ways to just look at our business is one is a very practical one from business one. I'll get to that second. And first is actually universe building. Um, it's really about, and it works for adults and it works for kids, but it's a lot more easy to see when a child takes a toy, scans it in. When they get it, like it's, it completes a fantasy, right? Which is you're like, oh my goodness, like my Pokemon is a stuffed animal and now it's in the game. Once you make that connection, like it's, it's very nice. Um, and so the, the universe building part is actually a huge part. Well, I could actually see how children would pick that up more quickly than adults would. Yeah, yeah, they super love it. Every time you show a kid our scanning stuff, they would just start trying to scan everything around the room <laughs> um, and seeing what they can actually put into it and collect it. It's, a, it's, it's super compelling when you see a kid do it. Yeah. It's really about universe building, right? The, you know, Disney started off doing cartoons and motion pictures, and they're like, oh, we're going to merchandise this stuff. There's not, no real co- connection other than when you see the character from Frozen or whatnot, you do the make-believe of that, right? But what games has done is actually taken that make-believe and created an interactive narrative where you can do make-believe in a game and continue to play it over a long period of time. And that's where Toys to Life really, I think, is the interesting piece, right? Which, if you think about when you were a kid, you collected your toys and you played with them and you did your make-believe thing, um, you can now do it in a game. I mean, the game itself actually can dictate more interesting game mechanics. Is there a way to make it more interactive rather than having the, the physical object, the, the figurine, scanning it, using it as an input device and having the game react to it is a, a one-way process? Mm-hmm. Is there a way to make it more interactive so there's, there's a, a feedback loop where the, the gameplay somehow interacts Oh yeah, there's, a, there's absolutely ways to do that, and there are companies that spend a lot of time doing that. Our, our goal specifically is to be able to have, and this is really a, a trend in businesses that I do, is uh, always about making things as accessible as possible, right? And we, we love these guys. They make great toys that, you know, there's a toy that you can actually have a robot, and whatever weapon you equip on top of the robot toy shows up in the game. The game can basically and basically feedback back into the toy. The problem with that toy is it's like a $500 toy, right? Um, and for us... Our main goal is to take the toys that people are already playing with, that they're already collecting with, using very simple like IoT type of technologies, enable those to actually have that connectivity. Which, and the funny part is with kids and, and adults too, is that that's good enough. Yeah, it, it seems like such a natural extension and natural progression of technology 
but it, it hasn't really been smooth. For example, I know that, that Disney pulled back on its Toys to Life marketing in mid-2016. Yeah, they, did, so they, they basically why? canceled was, their whole Infinity line. Why did they do that? What was the, what was the problem? The, the, the official answer... Um, well, let's get the real answer. That's always better. Disney Infinity was a wildly successful franchise for them. The quarter in which they canceled it, end of the holiday season of last year, they were basically number one. They did the most sales. They they beat beat every other guy. It it would seem like the ideal company to be running this. They have Marvel. They've got um, the standard Disney line, Pixar. Mm -hmm. They've got the strongest IP in the world for that. Yeah, and on Q4 holiday season 2015 was Star Wars. Force Awakens. Star Wars, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like uh, the, the the Disney Infinity launch that they did with that was just like sold like crazy. Uh, it was an epic blowout. I forgot what the exact revenue numbers were. Uh, you know, it's in the hundred million dollars easily. Why on earth would they back out of it? Couple reasons. I, the official stuff is really too expensive for them. Uh, and so there are two parts on this one. One is uh, you have the merchandise side, which you have to actually have to do real projections and figure out how many characters you produce and of the individual characters, how many of those you go and produce. Uh. Um, and they did, they messed up. They uh, overestimated and they underestimated because the year before Star Wars was frozen, um, and that was epic, like they made a, they sold a ton of those, and what they ran into is they had... I mean, Disney is as good as anyone in merchandising and projecting these kind of things. So was the problem that the Toys to Life interactivity was, was affecting the demand? Was it increasing it or decreasing it or skewing it in some way? They basically spent a lot of money to beat Skylanders, and, and the, ultimately they regretted it. Uh, everything from paying for the right shelf space to producing enough products so that you know guys like Toys R Us and Walmart would kind of carry that large amount. They just they blew a lot of money, yeah. and they actually had to write it off. And that was just on the inventory side. The other side is actually the story that is more relevant to us, which is on the digital side, they created a very expensive engine to maintain. And the key thing is uh, what what Disney and Skylanders, everybody focuses on is like the hardcore console development stuff, which is expensive and slow. So I'll give you an idea. So they, they went to market with a really high-risk strategy of this, this really rich, complex gaming world rather than simpler, smaller ones where they could gauge user interest and feedback. And yeah, and, and free-to-play is much better for Toys to Life. I'll give you an example of maintenance and creating new story. Let's take Puzzles and Dragons here in Japan. Hmm. And then let's take uh, let's take Disney Infinity, Puzzles and Dragons. Let's say tomorrow you next year you want to launch a new IP on it. Putting that content into a free to play game, which is actually a game engine that already has collections and allows you to add additional characters into it very scalably, it's not a big deal. They have, to, I mean, in Japan you have to do a lot of planning and whatnot, but you're not creating a ton of new content. On the other side, what Disney, what Disney has decided to do is every version that they put out is a huge narrative. The game design you could have done, which is the part that they finally figured out in the end, but it was too late, is that you want to go with the toy box model, which is like, oh, I want my toys, I want to be able to play with my toys, certain game interactions kind of like work around with it. But what they did is they created basically another movie, which you could take a character and like, it's just really, really expensive. So the toy box model is just simple play, simple interactions, simple, very simple storylines, and the emphasis is playing with your character in that environment. No, that you can play like Super Mario Brothers. A lot of it's actually that core gameplay, right? So you're running around, hopping around. Like that's a fun experience. You're incentivized to collect coins. That's like the game mechanics and the game hook that drives people to keep coming back. Whereas Disney, being a movie company, is really focused on the story, right? Which is like that's a really expensive endeavor, right? You've got 3D models, you have stories, voice actors, 
plots like okay. the, it's like uh the, the amount of work is almost uh, you know almost a hundredfold right like you just spend a lot of money so like to develop one of those games is like anywhere from like 50 to 100 million dollars annually um and then on top of that like usually those games take years to develop you think disney pulled out too quickly uh, i think so i don't know where that's going right now but a lot of people are trying to pick up that piece yeah i mean they have the world's best library of ip Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They they seem to be like the the perfect company to pick this up. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess every company will bring the tools they have to any project, right? So Disney wanted to create a big epic Disney game, rather than the small interactive world to to play in. But actually, I read both Disney and uh, Wii U uh, amiibos. Mm-hmm we're having the same problem with the activation rate. Mm. Um, people who would buy the toys but wouldn't activate them, wouldn't use the game with them. Yeah, Nintendo has a bigger, had a bigger issue with that than Disney did. How do you think they can fix that? It's all about gameplay. So do you think that in this case, Amiibos didn't have an interesting enough game? It wasn't immersive enough? Absolutely. So they kind of made the opposite mistake Disney did. Uh, no, both uh, the funny piece is both of them made game designs that didn't require the toy interaction. Uh, oh, really? I'll, I'll drive into I'll dive into it. So, Pokemon's the best game and the best example for what we actually want to do here for a lot of different reasons. The game is literally centered around wanting to collect things, and uh, and the story and everything they do pushes that type of experience. And so, Skylanders copies it very well. Example is when Skylanders, when you're walking around, moment you see a new character. It actually does this like cutscenes, like, oh, it's like whatever. This is Bob, Bob can shoot things, and like it accentuates the characteristics, reasons why you want the character. It's the whole gameplay model is designed around that. But whereas if you think about it with Disney, like they already assume you know the characters, they don't kind of push it. And what they do, and they had a lot of IP issues too. Like you can read into some of the stuff where, you know, certain stu- parts of the studio wanted to make sure a secondary character was definitely had a toy to go with it, even though nobody on the planet bought that toy. So it, it seems like they, they really weren't making proper use of the technology. They were kind of shoehorning it into their existing business models. Only people who know free-to-play will really be able to do it. And Japan, that's why Japan's actually the best for it, or Asia in general, is because Japan's created the concept of the gacha, or the gacha pong inside of the game. And, and po- it really comes from Pokemon. Right? Right. Why do you want another Pokemon? Like, is it always oh, cute? It's also because you don't know what, what powers they have, so you want to collect them. After you collect the one... And this is all very conducive for merchandising. But, like, the narrative guys don't get it, right? Like, Let me ask you this, then. Why would Toys to Life be a stronger driver than simple in-app purchases? Oh, I mean, in-app purchases absolutely make more money, by far. Like, if you are a digital game company, uh, especially the free-to-play mobile stuff, like, you know, merchandise in general is a distraction for you. I mean, there's a lot of things that work. The uh, mobile game business is going the same way as console, right? Which is, originally they had games and they had their own individual IP stuff and like they're trying to, and they would just create their own universes. But everybody always discovers ultimately story and IP discounts everything, right? You have you have Iron Man or Superman in your game, like your ability to go and acquire users, it's significantly cheaper. And that's when this type of business starts to come into play, right? Because... Um, almost all games now have IP inside of them now in the mobile mobile space. You were you rewinded three years ago. Not, none of them had their own IP, had, had IP, but now everybody's got everything from animes to like superheroes to like all the big stuff. Basically, has IP associated to it. They those guys are trying to solve optimize on two numbers. One is just how to acquire user at a cheaper 
price because um, it's really, really expensive. Um, and the second thing is uh, getting people to pay for the first time. And those are two things that Toys to Life absolutely helped out with. Right? So, for instance, uh, imagine every Marvel merchandise out there, which Disney is pushing anyway, actually has an ability to scan that piece of merchandise into your game. That absolutely equals a ton of free user acquisition. Right. Um, and then the second piece is uh, we're starting to do where you actually buy something in an in-app purchase and you get a real piece of merchandise associated to it. For, for the company themselves, like that extra piece of merchandise isn't the money piece. That they're, they're not worried about making money on merchandise. But the main thing is that there's a ton of friction for people to do their first-time purchase. Oh, okay. It lowers the barrier if they're getting a physical good mm-hmm. instead of just a virtual coins for an in Yeah, purchase. so like if you're in Contest of Champions, which is a fighting game, and you buy Iron Man, and you're like, oh, I got Iron Man digitally, but you're like, oh, I feel really bad buying a not real thing. In that, you also get an Iron Man t-shirt. You're like, oh, okay, whatever. And then that's when you get hooked. So the conversion from the first-time purchase to multiple purchases, it's an, it's an epic correlation. Okay. So how small is this technology? How small a toy could this be embedded into? So we, we do a combination of NFC and QR. And so if you look at this guy, the little sticker at the bottom is the NFC chip. You know, you can put it in a little rice ball. You could put it on a sticker. You could do anything with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. The, uh, the limitations are just like what materials that you're working with. So if it's metal, then you have to shield it. Do you see this core technology as having applications beyond gaming? Absolutely. And we do, we do that now. What, what kind of applications are you looking at? The main piece is, if you abstract it out, what we're doing is we're taking physical products and creating virtual economies and virtual demand on top of them. What do you mean by that? Uh, example is, today you have a collection of toy cars. When you look at it as a person, you're like, oh, I've got a Ferrari, I've got a Civic, well, blah, blah, blah. You convey certain human values on top of it. Once you take that car and you scan it into a racing game, there's actually a virtual value in that the game itself conveys on top of that car. Let's say I have the same Ferrari and Honda, the uh, same Civic, um, but maybe you play the Civic and you level it up more. Now that car is way more valuable than the Ferrari. That's ultimately what we look at, right? Which is when you take a piece of merchandise and start assigning virtual value into it. I see. And so the, the, e- the easy parallel to it is just things like gift cards. But it really is offline, online kind of a business model, right? Which is, that is it in a, its most simple form, right? For us, it's really about toys converting into, like, digital goods. Um, and they can actually exchange in a lot of different ways. People always just think about Mario becomes Mario in the game. But for us, actually, all we want is users to look at something and say, that, oh, when I scan this into something, it'll turn into something else. I don't know what it is. Now that becomes really, really interesting, right? Because you as a game designer and an event designer can create all sorts of interactions. Right, and and since these are not, they're just unique keys, the functionality could be changed on the fly. And that's what that's the fundamental IP that we provide. Yeah. Our platform allows you to manage this stuff at a, at a really high level and you can change it. Because to us, it's we think of it as advertising, actually. Um, so you can change where things go, how what they exchange for, um, and what the incentives are. Excellent. Before we were talking about that importance and that kind of visceral reaction of, of bridging that gap between the physical world and the digital world, mm-hmm. do you think augmented reality is something that will be used in conjunction with this technology, or do you see it as kind of a competitor to the technology on a very high level? We're, we're spending a lot of time on AR. Are you? Yeah. So to, to be used in conjunction with the existing yeah. technology? Like how, how would you use them together? 
The story that we try to portray is very straightforward. I want somebody to look at their toy and want to feel like it came alive, right? And however that experience is accentuated via like NFC or AR or other technologies that we haven't explored or talked about, like that's absolutely where we will invest. That makes a lot of sense. PowerCore is still small, relatively young. You've got about half the team here in Japan and half the team in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. What are some of the pros and cons of trying to to make that work, splitting the team between two cities like that? Yeah, we're actually like in many places. We have a lot of people oh, yeah. in Manila. We have some people in China. Over the last few companies I've done, like one of the things I've been working really hard on is to be able to do distributed workforce. It's hard, uh, but once, you know, like advents of like better internet, more technology, things like Slack, being disciplined in certain aspects of process has been very, very helpful for us. I hear that a lot in theory. Mm-hmm. But in practice, do you have, for example, the programming team in one location or is it truly distributed with a a couple of programmers in Manila and a couple here in Tokyo and designers scattered around. How do you work it? Our, ours is, there is some method to our madness, but there are, for us, it's actually optimizing on who has the talent and who we think want like, work really best with what we do. What I like to do is bring people in that are really passionate about what we do. But for me, like, time zone's very important. Um, physical location, not necessarily as much. Okay, so you find the right person and then you, you make the time zones work out somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of, all of our developers are in Asia time. The, the only time it gets messy was right about now. The holidays are all like, everybody's oh, got yeah. one set of holidays <laughs> and now it gets like... The last week of December, the last the first week of January, nothing gets done on this planet anywhere. Well, the, fun, the funny part is like where China does work during okay. that time, but then Chinese New Year's at the end of January and so they're all gone and so we have to like the, this holiday the holiday season for our business especially is difficult because all our, uh, we have some engineering in China but more importantly all of our product is made in China uh-huh. right and so for us like right now we're doing all this preparation all this all the sales and making sure that things are going to get designed and shipped properly with Chinese New Year in, in mind so that does become difficult what do you think of the the gaming industry in Japan in general so I mean back in the the console era Japan was incredibly innovative. They, they ruled the market. Mm-hmm. There was a period of about 10, 15 years, maybe longer, they've just been kind of coasting. Mm-hmm. Do you see a lot of new creativity here? Do you think Japan has a chance of regaining a dominance in, in gaming around the world? That's a tough one. The industry here talks about it a lot. If you look at the console stuff, you know, there hasn't been many new IPs that have been created. Like there's still just uh, all the games are sequels. Um, everything from Street Fighter to Pokemon to Mega Man to uh, Metal Gear Solid, right? Yeah. To Mario, if you really want to go old school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that is there is there is a, there is a problem there. To accentuate that problem, um, gameplay and cultural tastes have greatly changed, or uh, have greatly progressed globally. If you think about the game styles and stuff that's like really popular in Japan, game design stuff here has like just kind of gotten more and more hardcore, like the card battle, card collection stuff. Like that's all like. Monster Hunter, right. uh, all that type of stuff is like, it's very much a Japanese style of gameplay. And that's the stuff that they like. Me being here long enough, I'm getting too acclimated to so I like it too. But it's not anything that anybody else plays. It's over-focused on a particular niche? Yeah, so like the hardcore get more hardcore, right? Like I think the best story is to... Because uh, there's like card battle games in the U.S. too, right? But they're from Japan. Are they? Yeah, basically. They're from Asia. 
those things are they get pushed into the United States and some people perceive them as popular but they're not popular they're just popular on the rankings because those games just make so much money and then companies like Green DNA can pour a lot of money into marketing and you can make it look big but like the question is are those games still around how long do they sustain are they truly engaging with with uh, with the consumers which we see a lot of that stuff on the merchandising side which is what we've learned you're like oh game looks big lots of users oh it's mostly because people tried it out but like ultimately they're not really tied into the IP in the game right whereas like you know relationships with things like Mario and Street Fighter or whatever like that stuff lasting a lifetime that's yeah. very different right to give you an idea of like first person shooters don't perform here no, none of the popular games in the entire world work in this country um, and so the only exception to the rule now although the story I used to tell is Angry Birds big everywhere huge in China like not big here yeah at all it's a casual game but they just never figured out how to properly market it here well, the only exception is if you figure out how to do proper user acquisition and so Clash of Clans is a good example of it Clash of Clans took tried a year and a half to break into Japan it's not like the games changed that much since the beginning it's like why is it all of a sudden Japanese people are playing it it's because they properly hardcore went out and marketed the crap out of it how, how do they do it how do they do user acquisition here Japan user acquisition is very different from the rest of the world. In the U.S. or where else you actually do very much performance marketing, here is very much brand marketing. That's TV buys, train buys, station buys. That's the only way to do Japan, right? Like you have to start there, create that. Like, hey, this is a big game, everybody's playing it, and then you do the performance stuff. But it's really interesting if you think about um, if you talk to anybody in the TV industry. It was like five years ago, like TV advertising, their budgets were dominated by car companies. But now the top spenders are game companies. Like, uh, and when you turn on the TV, it's like every fourth commercial is like a game, right? Like, it's... Uh... Looking at the success of Clash of Clans in Japan, mm. do you think that first-person shooters, other types of games would be popular here if marketed correctly? Or do you think that there is underlying cultural preferences for one type of game or another? Uh, I think games like Clash will, will do better. And the, the, the key emphasis, actually, it's mobile. That, that, that's the big thing. Um, and, and, Clash, and Clash is a, it's cool because they started off as games, um, but they're now investing heavily in developing the universe, the story. Right? And so Clash before, you know, Supercell, they're just like really about making games that you know, highly engage the user, but the story behind the characters is not something they've give, cared about for like the first four years of the company. Now they're developing TV shows. Um, they put out like YouTube, like animated shorts. The commercials themselves are really about building up the characters, so people really want to participate in that universe. So is that really driven more by uh, customer retention, making the world rich and inviting, or is it also driven by new customer acquisition? Well, it's all of it. It's it's a practical it's a practical decision, but it's a lot more fun to make a product that you know people can care about. Sure. Um, and so I, I think that. That's part of the, the fun part about it. All right. Well, listen, before we wrap up, you've been coming back and forth between the U.S. and San Francisco for a number of years here. You've run startups in both cities. So I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. Okay. And that's if I gave you a magic wand and I said you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, its education system, the people's attitudes towards risk, the willingness to try new things anything at all to make it better for startups here in Japan, what would you change? The biggest piece for me is the culture of distributing success. Japanese companies, when they succeed, 
few people participate in that success. Um, and it's all about building out an ecosystem for it. Um, and so what I've seen with like successful IPOs that you know, you, you know, I know the people that have done them, there's like a handful of people become wealthy, um, and they they just hold on to the money. Do you mean more granting of stock options or more uh, yeah, investing it, and mentoring later on? All of it, but like the biggest thing is distributing the equity more, right? Because like right now, if you go hire somebody and you say, "Hey, I want to give you equity," they're like, "I don't care." They don't even understand the value of it because nobody, you know, nobody's ever heard of a story of somebody getting stock and becoming wealthy off of it. Yeah, it's definitely true. Japanese employees greatly prefer salary over equity. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge, huge ripple effect associated to it, right? Like you, if you, if you spend enough time in Silicon Valley, like you know, Google IPO five years down the line, like that's it's changed the world. You know, basically thousands of people became millionaires, sure. and there's a culture of basically taking the money that they've earned and reinvesting it. You know. PayPal, famously so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Every single every single IPO has created a generation of more, right? Whereas, like, you don't see that here. You absolutely don't because only a few people become wealthy. They just become very insular with their own network, and they just don't. Well, I also think it changes it changes the dynamic of the team as well. Mm-hmm. If you've got a team where everyone feels like they have a piece, even if it's a small piece of it, it's a very different dynamic than if you have maybe two founders that have equity and then employees. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, to me, that's the one thing I would change. Like, what I want is, like, we become, we become huge. Everybody that works here basically becomes, you know, much more independent financially. But from then, they can actually go and foster the next generation, right? They go do their own company. And they take that culture and convey it on. And the people that they, the startups that become successful there, they create their own generation of people that become, that's what's important, right? Because you change one thing, like, that doesn't foster a whole lot of change. But that stuff will actually create like huge ripple effects for stuff, right? I think so too. And I think with the, the amount of influence that foreign VCs are having here in Japan, I think we're going to see more and more of it. We're already starting to see more of it. Yeah, it's just, it takes a lot of time though. Yeah. It takes a ton of time. Well, excellent. Hey, listen, thanks so much for sitting down. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, man. Startups are the lifeblood of an economy. And there are few who understand it better than Deloitte Tomatsu Venture Support. Deloitte TVS is the number one startup supporter in Japan, and they spur innovation here by connecting startups with larger companies and government entities. They work free of charge with these startups to help them with acceleration, PR, fundraising, and also finding the right corporate partners here. So far, Deloitte TVS has supported more than 3,000 startups in Japan. And now they have a global open innovation platform connecting startups and enterprises worldwide. It's a great way to connect with some of Japan's biggest players. So be sure to check out what Deloitte TVS has to offer. And we're back. One of the things I found most interesting about trying to gain traction with Toys to Life was the toy box concept. Keeping the mechanics and keeping the play as simple as possible. It's understandable that this seems a bit counterintuitive at this age of escalating budgets in both movies and games. But to me, it seems to indicate that there's something real here. I mean, when you strip away the complex storytelling, high-end graphics, professional acting, and everything that game reviewers usually rave about, and what you have left is the most engaging kind of gameplay, then... I think you really have something. It's particularly interesting that children take to this so quickly. 
it would seem that the online-offline distinction is not something that's intrinsic and real, but something that we have learned. And children today will grow up with a very different understanding of where that boundary between the two worlds lies, if they perceive that as a boundary at all. If you've got experience with physical or digital gaming, G and I would love to hear from you. So stop by disruptingjapan.com slash show 073. And when you do, you'll find all the links and resources that Gia and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And I know you've been meaning to do this for a while now, but when you get the chance, please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can help us get the word out and help support the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.